Hey everybody, Leah Slaughter. I hope you are doing great. We are excited and a little bit sad to talk about some of the content that we're gonna talk about today. However, there is a lot of hope of what we're hearing and what changes that perhaps we were concerned might be happening that right now it doesn't look like are going to. So we've got a ton of content to cover. We're gonna to try to keep this as close to an hour as we can. And we've got an amazing guest panel today to discuss this all together. As always, there's a question area on the right where you can submit questions or anything you'd like us to cover. And we will go through as much of it as we can. Before I continue on to the class, I wanna tell you about a couple upcoming classes that we have. Next week, we're gonna talk about the pros and cons of Fannie Mae lending. For those of you that watched my class last week, we talked quite a bit about all of the reasons why Fannie Mae is great. Interest rate, down payment, and also some of the negatives like backed mortgages and the moratoriums that specifically pertain to that. So we're gonna explore both the pros and the cons so that you can make the best decision for yourself at your next investment property purchase. And then after that, I'm gonna teach a moratorium update on the CDC order. There's been some changes that have happened and I think there's gonna be more coming down the pipe. And so we're gonna talk about what's happened, what's changed and what we expect for the future. The takeaway from this is going to be don't worry, we are overall having great success challenging these and we're just not receiving that many. But it's also important that you understand what's going on for those of you that have properties in other states where also might not be going quite as well as they are here in landlord-friendly Texas. Now, I wanna make sure you know, you can always go to our Facebook page to see our upcoming events and register for those in advance. So of course, we always send out our flyers, but you can also see the upcoming class schedule beyond just the snapshot that I show you in the classes. And then for anything that you wanna go watch again, or you want to see other classes or media that you may have missed, you can go to our website and go to the media page, as you'll see here, or you can go to our YouTube channel and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the replays of all of the wonderful classes and webinars with both us and our guests. Now, before we get started, I wanna make sure that we go over the disclaimer. As always, we're gonna give you the best guidance and advice based on years of experience in our own investment property ownership and journey, as well as operating a real estate and investment property management firm. There are no guarantees, there's no crystal balls. We are always gonna do our best to guide you and provide you the tools and the contacts to help guide you along your way. We are one tool in your toolbox, as I always say, and of course, there's many others that are gonna guide you along your investment journey. Three of those great tools are here with us today and I am so excited to get started. So as an overview, we're gonna talk about what we expect to happen as we move forward with the changes now that the election has finished and there certainly is going to be changes. I, I don't wanna give the wrong impression that we don't think that there's gonna be modifications to a lot of the things that we're gonna be talking about today. So we're gonna go through taxes, 1031 exchanges, lending changes, regulatory changes, and also some of the things that we've been hearing from our sources and the people that we have at the top looking at and uh, kind of just exploring all of these items. So to get started, let's do an introduction of our panel today. Daniel Munoz is the branch manager in American Financial Network. He and I have worked together a really long time and he is just absolutely incredible. I have never met someone with a knowledge in lending, specifically conventional lending in my career. So Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Um, well, so your, your slide there's a little bit out of date. I think I'm actually 18, maybe 19 years now. Oh, even Somewhere better. There, but yeah, I start, 
started in this way back in the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, we, we've just kind of grown and grown and grown to, to a level to where we are probably one of the go-to people in DFW when it comes to lending. And we are, we're strictly conventional, um, you know, which, which means Freddie, Ma Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae lending. We, um, we have access to some of the niche products, but we really don't dive into that. We kind of, I'm a firm believer in stay in your lane, like what you're really good at, just and, and knock it out. So this is what we're really good at. You know, if there's a way to get it done, a lot of, you know, analyzing self-employed tax returns, dealing with clients that own, you know, Leah's sent me clients that literally, they're some daunting files when it comes to, I mean, I've literally got some of y'all's clients that have 30, 30 properties. And those are just, it's just tedious work in, in putting all that stuff in it, but it's, it's not complicated, but you get a hold of the wrong lender that looks at that and they're just like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't help you. You, you don't qualify. Well, that's probably not the case. They just don't know what they're looking at. So, um, you know, for the last probably 10 years, I think we've been really focused on lending to um, helping people actually build up investment portfolios because uh, everybody here in my office, you know, we eat, eat, live, breathe real estate. And, you know, we we're firm believers in building up a real estate portfolio here. So that's us. And a funny little side note. So we decided to transition our taxes this year to doing just a schedule of all the rental properties. And Howard, who's here, did it for us. And I thought Daniel was going to have a heart attack. Y'all <laughs> <laughs> so, all know who Luann is if you've been watching our classes. But Luann is the best intermediary for 1031 exchanges that we have worked with. And she's just an even more incredible person. So Luann, tell us just a little bit about you, your company, and what you do. I don't know if I can top that. <laughs> so, so I'm Luann Blau. I've been working for Exchange Resource Group, 1031 Exchange Intermediary for almost eight years now. Um, had a mobile notary business before that. Still will occasionally do that, but felt like this was the right thing to do. And so we educate and talk to people all day and jump through hoops to make your exchanges smooth and cost effective on both sides. Um, the company I work for is in Denver. We hold people's money in a bank and I work with some very, very, very fine people. The one thing that I love about Luann and just speaking from experience, some of our clients use other companies who are based out of California and there's a very different experience with some of the other companies. And I'll say it's the difference between the handhold flexible approach and the ironclad make everything as difficult as possible approach. So if you I, want easy 1031 exchange process, Luann is definitely your go-to. And we even like and we even like particular lenders, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> it, no, it, it makes a huge, huge difference because yeah. if if the 1031 is not on your side or not, not they're not on your side, but if they're not flexible and man, you know, there's just a lot of moving parts, especially in a mortgage transaction. If you're, if you're using financing, if, if people aren't accessible or non-responsive, or if they have hard deadlines that they can't work with you on, oh, man, it makes things so much more difficult than it has to be. Okay. It's all, you know, we, we talk a lot about it's, it's your group and it's your, everything right so if you don't have the right team behind you then nothing is going to go the way that you want it to and so the property can be great and your sale price can be great and everything can be great but in reality it really has to be the team as a whole and so that's the most important thing i think now 
finally, we have Howard Goodman, and Howard is fantastic. He is a kind of jack of all trades when it comes to finances, but of course he is a CPA and he is just absolutely wonderful. And one of my favorite things about Howard is I throw a lot of curveballs at him and he doesn't always know the answer to what I ask. And I love that he goes and researches it and he gets me exactly what I need to know, no matter how crazy what I'm asking is. And so he really is there to work for his clients and for our clients and, and for us. So thank you, Mr. Howard. Um, I'll let you guys know a little bit about myself and where I'm from. I'm originally from New York, but I've been in Texas for 20 years and don't really plan on leaving. Um, I started out um, as a CPA with uh, the large firm Deloitte, and then after a few years moved over to Wall Street, where I worked for about two decades in internal audit and then as an operations manager in some of the larger investment banks like Lehman Brothers, Solomon Brothers, Citibank, et cetera. Um, then about 10 years or so ago, um, with one of the Wall Street crashes, I decided, you know what, I just want to hang out my shingle and do what I do best, which I believe is just deal with individual people, small business owners. And that way I could take all of the operational and global operational experience that I'd learned aside from my CPA background and then help that to grow small businesses. And so that's really who most of my clients are. Um, in the last few years, after having met uh, Leah and Michael and Amiki, getting involved with their business, I've just taken a deep, deep dive into um, real estate and rental real estate investing. And I absolutely love it. I'm learning every day, but now I sort of try to consider myself an expert, which is why I believe uh, Leah invited me on the webinar. I think the key things here, uh, the questions I get all the time, of course, are people who are just starting to invest and now uh, growing to five properties, six properties, 10 properties. They want to know if they could take tax advantages for being a real estate professional. Do they spend enough time doing it um, that they can uh, claim more losses? Um, also, there are other tax strategies, 1031s obviously, which is land specialty, uh, which is why I'm glad we work with people like herself. Um, also, cost segregation is an issue that's become very big now, um, where you can take much more depreciation in the first years of owning a property uh, than you would otherwise. And also, I do everything else, like Leah says, sort of a jack of all trades. If uh, you don't have an LLC yet, but are wondering whether you should have one, how many properties should go into each LLC, once you grow, should your LLC be registered as an S-Corp with the IRS? Um, just all of these issues. So I'm all about the taxes. I'm all about finding expenses. I'm making sure your legal structure is right. And again, as Leah said, whatever it is I don't know, I will, you know, learn it for you and give you more information that you could possibly want. Uh, so that's Absolutely. my background. Yeah, he's in the middle of doing about uh, 70 cost segregations for me as of yesterday. <laughs> I was applying for PPP loans for all my small business clients yeah. uh, where the rules change daily. So life is a little crazy right now. So. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. So we're going to start with probably the, the most important piece in terms of what people want to know, and that's going to be tax changes. And this is going to be a lot of different things, right? So we're not just talking about paying more taxes, but we're also talking about what's going to change with what you can deduct, what you can depreciate, and everything in between. So let's kind of start with an income tax discussion. And Howard, I'm gonna let you lead some of this. What do you think we're gonna be seeing as we approach this first year in the Biden administration? Um, well, I think what you know a lot of people have been hearing is that tax rates are going to go up. The question is, is how much and on who? 
And I think the numbers that we hear all the time is that the Biden administration and the Congress is going to target um, people who make more than $400,000 a year. And generally, I think they're talking about married couples, uh, but that's really sort of the golden number. So um, one of the, the largest changes that could happen is a change in the capital gains rate, because right now, the maximum capital gains rate, which is what you pay when you sell a property, assuming there's no 1031 or anything involved, right now the maximum is 20%. And that 20% doesn't kick in until about $441,000 of income for a single person and $496,000 for a married couple. Now what they're talking about doing is they're basically um, thinking about raising that so that um, in this case, specifically with capital gains, they're talking about people who make a million dollars. So they say, if you're somewhere between that 400,000 and a million, once you're over the million, we're changing that 20% now to 39.6%. And on top of that, there's a 3.8% net investment income tax that came in with the Obamacare legislature um, about 10 years ago. So ultimately you could be paying um, about 43% in tax capital gain if you happen to be in that tax bracket. Again, if you make less than a million dollars, not too much to worry about here, but you know, many people in our audience may very well be in that category. Another Alan, thing what about the state rates? What about the state, um, tax, what about the state tax rates? Is that going to be added on to that? I'm sorry, was that state or a state? State. So the state, oh, state capital That's gain right. rate. Right, the state tax would be, you know, on top of that as well, of course. Wow. Yes. Okay. But I don't know about individual states, to be honest. You know what their plans are, you know, going forward. Um, yeah. As we know, you know, when we hear speaking about income tax rates, we hear all the time on the tax brackets that people who do do live in high income tax states, New York, California, um, they could be paying 60, 65 percent of tax, uh, you know, on a marginal rate on their top tax dollar. And the thing we have to remember is that, and we're going to talk about 1031 exchanges a little bit later, but if those do come under fire and we get to a point where that does change or disappear, which again, I don't think that's going to happen, but we're going to, we're going to explore that, then this capital gain rate becomes extremely important, especially for those of us that are invested in real estate. And the next thing on the slide is the Section 199A uh, deduction that uh, came in with the uh, Tax Cuts and Job Act of 2017. That's where if the real estate is the business and it's in your income tax as a business, um, you basically get to not pay tax on 20% of your income. So that if your net income or net profit is $100,000, you're only paying tax on 80,000. Um, what they're thinking about doing now is saying if your overall income, including W-2 wages, investment income, et cetera, is over 400,000, they're essentially going to take away uh, that 20% so that you have to pay taxes on 100% of your business profit. Um, I do wanna mention here, and I might as well mention here, that any of these things really still depend on Congress um, passing a law or passing a budget that has all these things in it. Um, normally, one might say that um, it would have to pass the Senate with 60 votes, um, that the Senate could filibuster, but there is such a thing as the reconciliation process, which many of you may have heard about. Um, it's not used very often, but again, the Obamacare legislature of 2010 was used using the reconciliation process, and so was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 at the beginning of the Trump administration. Um, in those cases, when they use that process, you only need a majority. 
of the Senate or 50 seats. So um, it's, it's very hard to say, will these things pass? Will they be included? The Senate and House still do have to agree. Both chambers do have to agree on these things if they're going to adjust them. Um, so again, still questions. Will it be proposed? Will they be able to agree between the two houses? Will they choose to use the reconciliation process? So I just wanted to lay that out there as far as the process for making these tax changes. I think that we're going to see, just speaking from what the next couple of years is going to really pertain to, and Luann and I were talking about this a few minutes ago, I don't know that this is all going to be the focus immediately. I think that this may not be a change we see in the next year, but I think as we move through the next, you know, year two, year three, I think that these tax increases are going to become more and more likely. I, I don't know how much they're going to do this with COVID still going on, because you have to remember that a lot of the people struggling are those high income earners, but they're also your employers. And so I don't know how much of this they're going to focus on in 2021, but by the time we get past COVID, which I do suspect by 2022, this is going to calm down at least, if not sooner, I think we're going to have a much bigger target on these tax changes. Now let's talk about the social security tax change because I think this is a big one for people that maybe aren't yet invested in real estate or for those that are still, you know, just dabbling at this point. So this is a big change for really a lot of people, not just investors. That's right. So um, here the social security tax right now, and it's always been this way, or at least for as long as I can remember, Basically, even if you're a W-2 employee, um, you know, once your earnings get up to a certain point, in this case, 137,000, you basically stop paying social security tax, which if you were an employee, that would be 6.2%. As a self-employed person, uh, which you are as a real estate investor, you're basically paying self-employment tax, uh, which is basically both the employee and employer side of social security, which brings it up to 12.4%. Um, so again, even as a self-employed person, a person investing in real estate, um, you would be making, you would be paying, excuse me, only that 12.4% up to the limit. However, the talk is of changing the law so that you won't have to pay anything between, let's say, 137,000 and 400. But once your income goes above 400,000 again from that self-employment income or rental real estate activity income, that 12.4% is going to kick in again. So if you can imagine, uh, let's say your income was $500,000, um, now you would have an extra $100,000 times 12.4%, which is $12,400 that you would be paying in taxes if they change the law this way. So Howard, question. You know, one of the big goals as real estate investors is to try to get as much depreciation and things to reduce our income as possible. So when we talk about these numbers, are these gross income numbers or are these net income numbers? Because that makes net income numbers, net income. So mm -hmm. for people that are building a real estate portfolio and doing cost segregations and gaining a portfolio for more depreciation, in theory, that could counteract a lot of this. Absolutely, at least in in one year, especially cost segregation. Yes. So one of the things I want you to think about, everybody, as we move through this, is now more than ever there's a lot of scary things being discussed in terms of tax law and with 1031 exchanges and everything else but at the end of the day the only chance we all really have to reduce what we're paying is through deductions and real estate honestly is about as good as it gets and it's one of the few things that stays regardless of what your income range is and so i want you to move through this thinking about how real estate now more than ever is going to be the tool that we're all going to use to save on our taxes and that's a real real important point to remember 
because I think we can get lost in some of the talk and the fear. And at the end of the day, there's a reason why so many of us are buying everything we can right now. And there's a reason why Howard is doing all these cost segregations right now for me personally. And that's because, and, and Howard, we'll take just a quick second and go over cost segregation. It essentially allows you to depreciate value of the property, certain items at a much higher scale. And so generally, like for me, I think it was $450,000 this year of depreciation benefit, uh, tax savings. And so I think the depreciation was what, 1.2 million or something like that, and the savings was 450,000. And so that carries over, right, Howard? And that's not something at this point that's at stake. So for those who own property and haven't done a cost segregation, that might be something worth looking at to help stave off whatever increases may happen this year or next year. Would you like me to discuss a little bit about cost segregation now, Leah? I would just do a very, very basic thing. And for those of you that want more information, we did a class on this, so you could go pull that up on the YouTube or the website. So basically, uh, when you own a rental property, um, when you purchase it, you can depreciate the cost of that property, uh, less the land, which isn't depreciable and depreciated over 27.5 years. So you just take the cost, divide it by 27.5, and that's an additional expense or deduction that will reduce your income and your taxes. What cost segregation does is it takes advantage of, of two tax principles. One is that there are certain items that make up the property, things like plumbing, electrical, appliances, flooring, things that wear out much quicker than 27 and a half years. They really only have a useful life of five years or seven years or 15 years. Um, that in combination with a law that Congress passed called bonus depreciation, which allows you to write off 100% of the value of an item if it has a useful life of 15 years or less. So what a cost segregation study does is it says, well, here's a $150,000 property. Um, and of the 150,000, about 50,000 of that um, are made up of items that have a useful life for 15 years or less. So instead of taking 150,000 and dividing it by 27.5, which is a relatively small number, it says you can take that 50,000 all at once in the year you purchase your property, which obviously just increases the deductions hugely against your income. And again, as Leah mentioned, it can be carried forward if you don't have enough income to offset the losses. Not only that, but in the other 26 and a half years, you still get to take the remaining balance. In this case, it was 100,000. You still get to take that 100,000 and depreciate it over 27 and a half years. So, um, you know, great value. Again, you do have to pay for cost segregation study. There are some that are less expensive, some that are more expensive, but they're really very inexpensive options uh, to get that number, have an engineering firm determine what you can write off in that first year and the benefits more than outweigh the cost of doing that study. Yeah, and for those of you interested in doing that, Howard can assist you with that, or feel free to reach out to me and I can give you more information on that. It's definitely something that I recommend everyone look at, especially over the next few years. Now, this is really important, and I don't know that a lot of people realize how important this is, but a lot of America doesn't own property, or if they do, they only own their primary home. And one of the ways that they build an estate or they build assets is when a family member dies and leaves property to them. A lot of us have been through that process. It's already difficult enough. And unfortunately, one of the things that's at stake right now is this change and a death tax. And so Howard, will you explain a little bit about how this would work and how it would affect those situations? 
Sure. Um, I may not read through the words on the slide exactly. Um, you all can just uh, sort of look at it later. But essentially what it is, is um, let's say that you've inherited a home from someone who's passed away. And let's say they bought it 30 years ago and they bought it at a cost of $50,000. Well, today that home's going to be worth half a million dollars. And let's say you want to sell it right away. Let's say you don't want to invest because this is really about selling the property ultimately. Um, and then you sell the property for half a million dollars. Um, what the current law says is, well, it wouldn't be fair for you to pay tax on that $450,000 gain. It, it's not your fault. Um, you didn't earn that gain. You didn't invest the money. So basically you wouldn't have to pay tax. You inherited something worth half a million. You sold it for half a million, no gain. Uh, what they're thinking of doing, and that's called um, a step up basis because the basis or cost used to be 50, but for your sake, the government is saying, we'll step it up to the half a million it's worth when you inherit it. What they're thinking of doing is basically eliminating that. They're saying, you got this property. Um, we, the government, we feel like we're being cheated out of that taxes on $450,000 gain that your relative would have paid. So we're going to take it from you. Thank you very much. So again, this is one of those things. It may happen. It may not happen. It was in various, if not official tax plans, rumors, speeches. But again, um, this could have a very significant, excuse me, significant effect on the cash that you would have left after selling an inherited property. Yep, 100%. Right, and especially, I'm sorry, Leah, not to interrupt, but especially if they raise the capital gains tax, so that, again, imagine in this scenario, your gain alone, forget about what you make in other income outside, your gain is 450,000. That puts you in that tax bracket where all of a sudden the capital gains is not 20%, it's 39.6%, all in no fault of your own. So, I'm sorry. No, 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 that's perfect. I've just got a couple questions. So number one, how much does the cost segregation study cost on average? And also, if I didn't take that depreciation in the year of purchase, can I do that in a subsequent year? Um, I'll answer the second question uh, because it's easier. The answer is yes, uh, you can take it in a subsequent year. Um, you can't choose what year, but the year you do the cost segregation study, uh, that's when you can do it. Um, the question about the cost of the study, there's really different levels. Um, I happen to partner with a firm um, that can do a, a study that's basically very simple. It's done with uh, software, proprietary software, and they charge roughly $350 to $400 per property. And what you get is an engineering report. Um, basically, it's not based on your specific property, but they know based on the location and the cost and the type of build, you know, you put in what kind of roof does it have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're pretty sure that, you know, this is the right percentage of the cost to use that the IRS will approve. And um, they put what they call their audit protection, where they will defend their calculation to the IRS. Now, if you have a very expensive property, um, let's say somewhere in the half a million dollar range or more, you may want to spend more. You may want to spend even several thousand dollars to get a truly detailed engineering study where an engineer goes out on site um, obviously, the tax savings are much greater, which would cover that additional cost, the several thousand versus 400. But again, the larger the property, the more attention it could bring from the tax authorities and the more detailed of a report you want. But if you have a smaller property that's 120,000, 150, 200,000, um, these 350 to $400 reports definitely will serve you and serve with protection, usually backed by the engineering firm um, for the cost savings. Perfect. 
Now, next, we're going to move on to changes that we're seeing and what we're expecting for real estate investors. But before we start there, Daniel and Luann, is there anything that you want to add to our discussion on tax changes? Um, Howard, I just uh, we've been in contact with a lobbyist in Washington who is lobbying for the Federal Exchange of Accommodators. We talked to him yesterday and his opinion with the stepped up basis is that probably is going to be the last thing that's going to be looked at, um, which we can hope we're not taking anything for granted. But you know, there's an awful lot of people in, in the government that have, have made their money in real estate. So we're kind of, we're, we're more guarded than normal because we go through this every four years, but, but he's pretty high up in there. And that's kind of what he told us yesterday just for an FYI. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, I think that Congress now obviously is going to be focused on COVID relief and other things related to that and more economic impact payments. You know, I don't think these real estate things are the first thing they're going to be looking at, looking at but usually several months into an administration is when they start seriously considering the budget. And of course, the fiscal year starts October 1st for the federal government. So right. October 1st is really sort of the target date, I think, that you're looking at for serious changes. Yeah. Now, one of the things, and there's a question about this, but I do want to just briefly touch on this for cost segregation. So if you do a cost segregation and then you sell your property, this is really a problem if you're not 1031 exchanging. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but there are some caveats to it. So Howard, will you just briefly talk about what happens when you do a cost seg and you sell both with and without a 1031? Sure, um, basically, and I'll try to keep this relatively brief because otherwise it can get complicated, but there is such a thing as depreciation recapture. Um, so what that means is that if you take a significant amount of depreciation on any asset, and it doesn't have to be real estate there. You could write off a, a car 100% or, or many, many other pieces of machinery or equipment. Um, if you wind up selling it the next year, um, what happens is if you write off the whole thing, the government considers that your cost or basis is zero and whatever you sell it for is now a gain on the entire amount that you sold it for. And the government says, well, I want my money back. You took all this depreciation um, and now you've made a gain. So now you have to pay ordinary income on that gain. So that's how your the government gets money back. With a 1031, of course, you basically take are taking the basis from the original property and putting it into the exchanged property. And so there is no sale. There is no gain on sale. The depreciation stays. You don't have to pay any extra taxes or recapture on that. That's about as simple as I can make it. Perfect. Thank you, Howard. That's hugely helpful. So Let's talk about the 1031 exchange because this has been a big contention point of everybody lately in real estate investing. So, Luann, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and really what's at stake here. Well, <laughs> a lot is at stake because investors, everyday ordinary people, when you sell your investment property and you have gain on it, instead of having to pay the tax and the depreciation recapture, then you roll that money into purchasing new property and you're increasing your portfolio, you're deferring your tax, and with the stepped-up basis, you're leaving a legacy for your, for your families. So what we are concerned about, and it comes up every four years, is that the 1031 exchange could go by the wayside. 
um, or it could be adjusted to this 400,000 income. So Lee, I haven't seen that 400,000 could include the gain on the sale of the properties, but that's very possible that, that it, um, it could be that way. So people are asking me, number one, are they going to go away? Which of course we don't know. And again, we hope that they don't. And number two, would they make them retro? Um, we don't know how in the world they could possibly, if they did get rid of it, make it retroactive to people that are in the middle of an exchange. So Howard, you may get some questions on that at some, at some point too. Um, but yeah, so when you sell a property, if you don't do an exchange and you have depreciated it, you're going to pay what we tell people is 25% of their depreciation recapture. Um, capital gains of 15 or 20%, and that is a federal rate, and that 15 or 20 depends on your income level. Most people who own real estate are going to qualify for that extra Obamacare tax, which will take you to the 20% federal. And then the state income tax is going to be anywhere between 0 to 13 plus. California people, I think yours was getting ready to go up to over 16. Um, and that bottom bullet is, I kind of jumped the gun on that, but that is the net investment income tax, AKA Medicare, AKA Obama surcharge of 3.8%. So you're able to defer a lot of taxes. And as we know, real estate has gone up tremendously these past couple of years. So here's an example. Um, we're gonna start with 100,000 and it says property value, it's all cash, the basis was zero. So we're actually talking about a potential gain of 100,000 on this property. We're gonna go with the 20% federal. We're not factoring in any state or depreciation recapture in this example. The first one shown is gonna do an exchange. So they're gonna defer their tax. So after tax, they have 100,000, we're gonna assume Daniel, that there's 20% down for a loan or has it gone up? Is it, you can get 20. You can get, you can okay. get away with 20. These examples are a couple of years old, so that's why I'm checking. So in theory, they put 20% down. They could buy 500,000 worth of property, increase their portfolio. B, the second one, goes ahead and pays the tax of 20,000. After tax, 80,000. They are eligible to buy 400,000. So we look, um, what year, okay, this is five years down the road. And again, these are very general examples. We're assuming that the property value from that last slide, the 500 and 400 has increased 5% a year. So A is up 638, B is at 510. They, A exchanges again, B goes ahead and pays the tax at the end of the day. A has paid zero tax and is able to buy a portfolio of close to 700,000. And B has paid 42,000 in tax and is around 440. So it's, it's widening. And then if you looked at example in 10 years, if you started young, you look at the end of the day, A is like Leah. A is a, owns property close to a million and B is not even at 500,000 yet and has paid 66,500 and some dollars in tax. 
And Isn't one thing I want to point out is this only assumes you exchange every five years. For our clients, right. people like me, it compounds far beyond this. And so really at the end of the day, it's a very important process. It would be hugely detrimental to lose this option. I've got just a couple questions. So number one is the 400,000 income level that's been mentioned by Howard for an individual or married couple. I have to pun on that one, Howard. You know, all you ever hear is 400,000. They never really say single or married. So to be honest, they don't have a really good answer for that. They just say income over 400,000. So it could be either or, or both. I'm thinking it's going to be individual, but I could be wrong just because if they truly were to make it 400,000 for a couple, your people in California, New York, and your very expensive areas, it's going to affect those states significantly. And those are the states whose senators and representatives are driving this. So I'm going to make a bet that it's going to be individual, but we'll see. Now, another question, can that $500,000 be more than one property? Yes, this is total value of property. How you distribute that is dependent on what you purchase. So here in this example, your 954 and your 488, that's total sum of all properties leveraged at 20% down. And again, that's assuming you did an exchange at year five and year 10. Uh, I have another question along those same lines. So yes, that would be like $500,000 properties for that first example at half a million. So then, Luann, let's look at 20 years. And this is, again, only one more exchange now at year 20, but look at those numbers. It's incredible. Wow, it's amazing. 3,640,000 in zip zero zilch text. My, if Dan was here, he would say, you defer, 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 and then you die. And then at the present time, that's seriously what he says. At the present time, that 3,640,000 would be a stepped up basis and your heirs would inherit and then their new basis would start at that number and increase from there. B has paid over a hundred thousand in tax and it's still not reached the million dollar threshold for their property. So it's huge. It's absolutely now, how, huge. Now, great question for you. And this isn't coming from a client, this is me. Let's assume that this person who now is in 3.6 million in property does a cost segregation. And let's say they get I don't know, a million dollars in cost seg item. When they go to sell in five years, are they gonna pay back all that money or is the gain gonna increase and therefore they don't owe any money back and then they can go buy and do it all over again? And that question's for me? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry, I had some things. It's not for me, Howard. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I just had some messages coming in and it kind of blanked out the voices a little bit. So basically, you know, the gain is simply calculated by the sales price less the basis in the property. And any depreciation, whether it's cost segregation, depreciation, regular depreciation, that's lowering and constantly lowering the basis in the property. So there's other things that are included in the calculation. You could lower your gain based on the closing costs uh, when you bought and sold the property, et cetera, et cetera. But um, basically, that's what the calculation is. It's, it's simply sale price less whatever depreciation you've taken in whatever form, and that's your gain. Now, I have another question, and this one is an important one. Can you do these 1031 exchanges with flips? And the answer is no. And generally, the recommendation, and Luann, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a year and a day. It's all about the intent of the property. And so typically, you want to hold that property a year and a day before you perform an exchange. Yeah, the IRS, that's exactly right. The IRS differentiates between 
flipping, which they look at as buying the property as inventory, strictly for the purpose of resale, as opposed to buying it, holding it out, holding out, getting some investment income, and then selling it. So yeah. it, it's it, the flips are normally uh, tax short-term capital gains, which is a whole different mm -hmm. ball of wax. Yep. Now, this is, to me, one of the things that nobody's talking about. And I want to make sure we cover this because I do think that everything else aside, there's going to be a lot of changes in the lending market and just the programs that are being offered, rates. Uh, I think we're going to see changes from everything from oil and gas to the types of mortgages that are available, the interest rate changes, the pressure that was done to keep the rates down during the Trump presidency. So, Daniel, let's kind of tackle some of these items. What do you think and what are you seeing already just since he was elected? And where do you think we're heading? So, first things first. Um, I had to call my doctor and increase my blood pressure medicine because of all the tax implications that Howard talked about. Good Lord. Um, but so, you know, the number one thing Biden did immediately, you saw, I don't know, you may not have saw or seen, is that he installed a new head of the CFPB. Well, CFPB is basically who regulates me from top to bottom. They talk, they, they control how I can get paid. They control how I can disclose my loans to you. They control everything. And one thing that Trump administration did when they came in is they lifted off a lot of that burdensome regulation, which means we were able to get rid of a lot of admin positions, if you will, that kind of monitor us from top to bottom. And, and they're only, you say, well, what, how does that affect me? Well, that's payroll that has to get generated from lending, right? So the more people we have to pay to, you know, take care of all the regulatory items that we have to worry about, the, the higher rates are, are will go. Um, one thing that we know for sure, and this is just from the Obama administration, is that they love to, for whatever reason, well, I guess because they blame 2008 on, on, you know, mortgage brokers. They, they, they basically said we were the problem, which is no, we just sold what they, what was available to be sold on the market, right? So at the end of the day, um, they came in and they smashed us. So from 2008 through, you know, all the way to through 2016, you know, we figured out how to navigate through it and you always find ways to overcome and, and make it work. But at the end of the day, they're going to come in with something. They've already installed a new head of the CFPB. And I don't know what this guy's for CFPB? Uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Thank you. I heard that didn't. Okay. And, and so he, he you know, they have been, a lot of people said for during Trump's whole administration, they're asleep at the wheel. Well, I don't know that that's truly the fact. They just weren't, they're just not trying to be burdensome and on something that's just rocking and rolling right now. Now, when it comes to rates, you know, I, I think, and this is, this is a conversation I have with a lot of my clients, a, a lot of our, my employees, um, everybody's, you know, if I had a crystal ball and I could truly tell you what was going to happen, I'd be a trillionaire and wouldn't be on this webinar right now. But the, <laughs> yes, you would. The bottom line is, is, you know, I think that we are in a unique position being in the mortgage industry. So that when things start to tumble, um, if they do, I think we the one thing the one thing they have learned that they can stimulate the economy with is bo boosting the housing market. 
and that's keeping rates low. And I think we're so spoiled right now that if you try to mess with these rates too much, we are going to see, you're going to see rates do this. This is, it's just the way, it's the nature of the beast. Um, I can lock it, I can lock in somebody on a Monday at 3.125 and someone else on, at 3.375 on a Wednesday. Um, and it, they could be the exact same client, exact same port, uh, port profile, but it's just timing and and what's out there, you know, what investors are doing. So now I will say this about investors. They have they tend to have knee jerk reactions. Right. So and I wouldn't say COVID, when COVID came, that's not really necessarily a knee jerk reaction. They just kind of protected themselves. So when COVID hit, we were just everybody. I stood in my office and I go, oh, man, here we go. 2008, 9, 10, all over again, because products were being pulled off the table left and right. Rates went, rates increased almost a point in or more in, you know, some situations and it all happened within about three hours. And then they just kept, the, the hits kept rolling and rolling. Well, then all of a sudden they said, okay, we've kind of got this under control and lenders, you know, said, okay, relax a little bit. They started peeling back some of the overlays and the the rate hikes and because the money was still there, it's just, they didn't know, nobody knew what was going to happen. Um, so then, you know, long story short, we exploded and we had our biggest year in the, the, the since I've been doing this in 19 years, this, I've never, we've never, I, I could, I could work literally 24 hours a day and still be behind. Um, so rates right now, I think we're going to hold steady this year. I think after this you year do? for the whole year, I think That's so. Awesome. I, I think I think we're gonna I think we're gonna be okay for for the foreseeable future. Now, that, you know that, but like I said, we don't know who this new CFPB guy is. I haven't done any research on him, and I don't know what he's gonna do, um, regulatory wise, on us that that could literally make investors step back and go, okay, great, that just cost us a half a point in margin, so pass it on, right? So we'll we'll know as the time goes on. But the crazy thing is is Safe rates went up a half a point tomorrow. You're at 3.625 on an investment loan with 25% down instead of 3.125. It's rates are insane. Like it's I can't, I can't, it's I can't even imagine. Like you know that's and that, but that's how spoiled we are now. It's like someone's like, oh, 3625. I don't know, man. That's kind of it's getting up there. Like oh really? You know when I when I started doing mortgages, we were we were. 10 and 12% and every, every loan had four or five discount points applied to it. So um, it's just, it, it's just crazy. Even, even if they went up to four and a half percent, you're not, I don't think you're in a, in an environment where it's really going to hurt you that bad. Right. So you're, you're depending on what, what, you know, in the higher loan amounts, the one point swing makes a, a big difference. But when you're, if you're below 200 loan amounts, the one point swing is not, is not, it's not going to affect you. It's going to it's going to take a couple of dollars off your bottom line, but you're still going to you're still going to be in the right direction when it comes to building your investment portfolio. Well, and a lot okay. of us in the force too because we're doing commercial and portfolio financing. So, for us it's really a non-issue. It's it's for your first-time home buyers and those doing Fannie Mae and again we're so far below four years ago when I first met you Daniel, your best product rate was like 5 and a so, I mean, we're looking at these rates now and you're basically able to get money on a HELOC or whatever you're doing if you don't have the money to go invest and invest it and literally have a loan on the backside for the investment property cheaper than you borrowed the money you're investing. It's free money. It's yep. incredible. It's got to change at some point, though. 
Yeah, you know, and when it, like I said, I, I think I think we're okay uh, for a little bit, but but at the same time, I'm telling everybody, you you know, some people are like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait around and see what rates are about to do. Like, you want to wait to get, you know, on on primary mortgages right now, you know, conventional side, which, which is the new loan amount for 2021 is five hundred forty eight thousand two hundred fifty dollars. So any loan at 548K and below is now conventional. And that's gone up every year for the last four years just because of what's happening in housing. So most, most um, you know, most primary mortgages, depending on how much you owe on it, you can get two and a half percent, you know, if you're not messing with the jumbo market. So if you're talking two and a half, two and a 2.375, someone's willing to pay points. I've seen, I've seen a 2% rate. We've got government loans, um, which is your, your FHA and your VA type stuff that are close to 2%, um, depending on what you're doing. So there's there's no, I mean, you're almost talking about zero rates. So, I mean, so that doesn't really get any closer to zero than where we're at now. We're almost to zero. So I you know, closed one. I closed one last week at 1.875, a, a 30 year refinance with no points. Good it's Lord. amazing. Well, I can tell you, like even personally, Daniel, you did my, I bought my personal home. We refinanced it a year later and dropped the payment significantly because rates had dropped. And you're refinancing it now again because rates have dropped so much. And we're talking about what I'm saving a thousand dollars a month. And this is now the second refinance in less than three years. So rates have just pummeled. Now, the one thing that I'm hearing a lot, and I really want to take a moment and talk about this is this fear that we're back in 2007, 2008. And I want to make sure you guys understand, we are nowhere near where we were in 2007, 2008 in the crash. A lot of reasons. Number one, a lot of people have equity in their homes. We're not these zero down products anymore. The market is stronger than notably it's ever been. And it's a completely different world. Daniel, will you just take a second and tell me what you're seeing? Because you were here just like I was through the last crash. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing differently that's not bringing you the pause that it did back then? So you you nailed it. The number one thing is get in the game, equity. Nobody can walk up to a property, you know, unless you're talking about primary residences for a veteran who can still do zero zero down. But those are those are insured, right? So they're still there's still money backing those loans. You're not walking up to, especially in the investment world, which, you know, you could get away with 5% down way back then and, and PMI it and do all this crazy stuff. But everybody, you know, we're so far removed from, from the mortgage meltdown or for the real estate collapse where nobody had equity. And, you know, everybody was, you know, California was, they were refinancing their properties back then every three to six months because they didn't have in, te- in Texas, you can only cash out every 12 months, your primary residence, right? Um, in California, there's, there is no rule. So their values were increasing so much. Those people would then cash out every like three to six months, um, just based on whatever appraisal they could get. And they just kept their equity. They just kept eating their equity position over and over. And they were never capped at 80%. In Texas, we're capped at 80%. Texas is a bubble. And it's in and of itself. And I think it's one of the absolute best places to own real estate because even though they say, hey, you can't take out, you know, um, the full value of your house in in an equity loan. I think that's a really good thing because people would do it. People would cash out to 95 percent, get in trouble and then lose their house. Right. Well, now in Texas, they don't allow you to do that. So I was around when they first started letting you do actual home equity loans in like 2000 or whatever it was. And. 
um, it went crazy and everybody was complaining about the 20% rule, but it saved us, um, you know, from it being even worse than it was. Well, uh, so the fact that everybody has equity and you can, if you get into trouble, you can liquidate properties now, you know, because of the market and their equity position when they just purchase the property without having to go into that foreclosure status. Um, not to saying that you're not going to still have your foreclosures and people aren't going to make the wrong decisions, but you know, we are, we are in a bubble here when it comes to that kind of stuff. I can tell you that I scope between 30 and 40 properties a day, as you guys know, especially those of you on our investor list. I saw my first foreclosure two months yesterday. And I literally, I saw it on the MLS and I saw the REO instructions and I thought, holy moly, has it really been that long since I've seen one? And I also want to point out, when we're here talking about Texas, Texas is, you said it perfectly, Daniel, we are our own bubble, but really we're, we're kind of our own economy. And so I really feel like, yes, we're the fourth largest metro in the United States up here. We're 10th largest economy in the world, but we have this business and this job growth and this, it is literally the perfect environment. But Texas aside, our country is resilient. Our country is strong. And as long as we continue on that path and we don't do anything to destroy it, and I, I just, I don't think it's going to happen. I feel like we are so strong right now that regardless of what's being thrown at us with COVID and the fact that we survived COVID and we're still as strong as we are and the market is still where it is. I mean, we really all have to take a moment and just be so thankful that we are in the place that we are. Because had this happened 10 years ago, it would have been a completely different story. And so we really were resilient and our market is resilient and our housing market is resilient. And as much as regulation being removed was not everybody's first choice, especially after the crash, Daniel, you and I both know that we wouldn't be where we were if that hadn't happened. And so, you know, the best thing that we could all do is advocate to your congressmen, advocate to the people in your local governments and make sure they understand in everything that we've talked about today, whether it's the tax rate you're paying, whether it's the 1031 exchange process, how it helps everyone, not just the rich. And that's really, this is not a political thing, right? This is just the dialogue right now is that we need to do these things to hurt the rich. And I understand that, I understand that mentality, but the piece that concerns me and the piece that I wanna make sure that we continue being vocal about, and Luann, you and I talk about this a lot, is how the little guy, this is where they make their money. This is where they make their retirement. Because we all know no one else is gonna take care of us. That is our job, that is, the government's not gonna support us till the day we die. We all know that. You know, We might've been raised being told that, but it's just not the case. There's a reason I started buying property when I was 18 we're not done we understand that for me to be able to provide for my kids and my grandchildren and my employees and everything else it's up to us and we're american we are ingenious and we have the ability to do that and so we all just need to make sure that we do our part and it doesn't matter what side you're on i don't care if you love biden hate biden love trump hate trump we are all americans and we all need these processes and so whoever's in power like luann said we have these discussions every four years what we need to be talking about what we need to be doing is talking about how it's not just the rich who are in real estate it's all of us trying to make a living for ourselves yep. so can i add on to that julie about what we talked about earlier Please. we we want your story we at erg want your story um I think my email will come up. If you're willing to take a short video, if you're willing to just write it down, how what the 1031 exchange has done for you, 
who you've been able to provide for, you know, why you got into it, not just to defer taxes, but how it has improved the quality of your life. And when we do see it coming up on the radar, we're going to ask you to send it to your congressman. And we're pretty well connected in Washington with some of the lobbyists. They say we don't they don't care about the little guy, but we're going to try. We're going to send these stories to Washington, to these lobbyists and see, you know, see see what it could do from real ordinary American people. I have people who invest with me who make $50,000 a year as school teachers and they never in a million years had they not met us would have been in real estate and they've been able to replace a huge chunk of their income. And, you know, just even going back to the, the Burr model class we did last week, how you can utilize different products to really do something regardless of your financial standing. It is so important that those at the top who right now, I personally do feel like they're not listening to us. I think that we have to make our voices heard, especially. Absolutely. And I do think, and this is just my personal opinion, I think that having a real estate mogul in office that everybody hated really put the target on real estate and really put the target on these things. And so I think that we need to do a great job all together of trying to kind of get rid of that stigma that real estate's not just for rich, because it's not, it's for the everyday person to be able to retire. Now, Daniel, let's talk a little bit about COVID and I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on this because my hope is that our clients that are attending this haven't done forbearances and haven't had to use protections. I, I certainly hope everyone's doing okay. But let's talk a little bit about how that and COVID is going to affect future lending ability for people who did take forbearances, did take some of these, whether it's a PPP loan, whether it's a you know partial not paying mortgage for a few months. What are you seeing and what do you expect? So one thing, and this is something Howard may want to look into, that we're coming across for 2020 tax returns is people are being able to take that PPP loan and write it off against their bottom line. So it's showing... Uh, you know, like I have a client that took a $200,000 write-off, so it took his bottom line down to almost nothing. Well, and we're waiting on guidance on this because now his income, because they because that PPP loan being a write-off, he doesn't qualify for anything. So we don't know. So that's what we call a paper loss, right? So what we're going to do, what we're trying to see, and we're asking for investor guidance is, hey, are you guys going to allow us to add that back in like we do depreciation because depreciation is just a paper loss, right? So we can add that back in and show it as true income. Well, if they, if they don't, they're going to have to, so this is a moving target and thankfully, well, not thankfully, but it's, it helps us that they've pushed it, um, filing taxes back to the Feb till February or whatever it is, because we need to know how are we calculating income right now? Right? So that's the number one thing with the PPP loans is if you take if you have a business you took those and then your CPA goes in and, and files it and, and reduces your bottom line down to virtually nothing it's basically showing that you made no money so you may not be able to borrow anything so until that's another that's one thing that's up in the air right now um Daniel, you know, they, I just want to say that that's a great point that you bring up because I I've had many many clients over the years who I go in and I tell them about all these great deductions and tax savings and uh, then they say, yeah, but I needed a loan. Like, we, we can't do that. We can't take all these deductions. Yeah. And then I have to sort of work with them. Now, the IRS is always happy if you pay them more. And there's yeah. no law that you have to take every business expense as a deduction. So you don't have to declare them and you could get a higher income as long as you're willing to pay. It's, that's great. 
it's it's extremely important to work with a CPA that understands what you're trying to do. So if you just send it over and they don't know what you're trying to do, um, you know, you'll end up where, where you could just maybe not qualify for anything. And that's just a bad situation to be in. So the when it comes to, you know, they're a lot, they're a lot, they're whatever postponing the evictions, which with us, if I can send, I can send Leah the links and she can send them out to everybody. But, and I, she, I may have already sent them out to you, but you can track whether your home is owned by Fannie Mae or your loan is owned by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. So you can go in and just punch in your address. If you know, you'll have to have like, I think the last four of your social things like that. And it'll tell you who owns your loan. Um, and those are the ones that are, that the, the eviction moratoriums are, are, those are the ones that are affected by that stuff. Now, if you took the forbearance on your property, that hasn't changed. Um, you have two choices right now. You either bring all the payments you missed current, and then you're eligible to refinance or purchase, um, or you have to work out a modification basically, and they'll add those payments to the end of your loan. And then some investors right now are allowing six months of repayment history. So if you just came out of your forbearance agreement, even though you didn't pay all those payments back, you have to make at least six payments before you're eligible to do anything. Um, most investors, I will say, are 12 months. Um, so they want to see 12 months reestablished payment history. Um, and that, and so that's, and there's really no way around that. So, and I, I know a lot, I know a lot of people who have taken that and they, they just get a lot of bad information, especially from the person, the investors that they're, that they're putting the house in forbearance with. Oh no, the number one thing is I'll tell you, it's not going to affect anything. We're not even going to, nobody will know. And the funny thing is, and what I have noticed about credit right now is that if you even just call and, and, and just have questions, not if you take the forbearance agreement, they're slapping that information on your credit report and, and saying, and it says a uh, loan has been affected by natural disaster. Now that triggers a whole tsunami of crap on the back end for us that we have to go in and start proving that you never took that loan. We have to prove your payments, all that good stuff. And there's nothing been, you know, and that, that involves getting them involved to write, have them write letters and your servicers aren't happy to write letters and they're not willing to really put their name on anything. So you just got to be really, really careful and only do that if you need it. You know, some people just called me and said, Hey, I just want to skip these six payments. That sounds awesome. I just pocket that money and move it to the bag. I'm like, okay, but as long as you're not planning on buying or doing anything for the next year, go for it. You know, so, but if you have any, you know, just don't do it if you don't need to do it. It's not worth it. And the one thing I do want to clarify when he's talking about the backed mortgages and evictions, he's talking about homeowners being evicted out of their homes and foreclosed. When we right. talk about the CDC moratorium and all that, that's different. And that applies to all mortgages and all cash owned property. And remember, we are doing a moratorium update class in two weeks, going over all of the changes and what we expect upcoming. So I think, guys, just in closing, and, and I'm going to do a Q&A for anybody who has any follow up questions. But I really I feel like there's a lot of positive here. And I also feel like there's a lot of unknown, but there's really not anything certainly negative right now. Is there any topic or anything else that we want to close with here that we want to have as a takeaway? Okay. Just I definitely, be proactive. Yeah. Be proactive with your with your representatives. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think, you know, we've all gotten kind of complacent this year of being home and and just kind of being to our family and to ourselves and i think that in some ways we've got to get out of that normalcy that we've created now and and remember that we 
this country was founded on fighting for the principles that we believe in. And so, you know, writing just a simple letter or giving ammo to those that are out there lobbying and fighting, that's really, really important because it doesn't just affect all of us if taxes go up or the 1031 exchange changes. It affects the entire country. It affects everybody because if one section struggles, and, and you have to remember that these employers that are going to be taxed into oblivion that are just now recovering from COVID or, or God forbid, still in recovery from COVID, they're the employers. And so we have to remember at the end of the day that these are the people who are supplying and these small business owners. Now, your big corporations and your Amazons and your people who are not paying their fair share, totally different story, tax them. But for your small business owners, a lot of which that barely survived, I don't want to see us create a problem that doesn't need to exist. We need to get our spending under control. And I think that, and I hope that that's going to be a big tackle over the next couple of years, instead of trying to increase taxes on, on people who are business owners already paying a lot. Now, I've got a couple things here. Um, let's see. Daniel, what all states are you licensed to lend in or able so, to lend in partnerships? So um, technically, I can lend in all 50 states. Um, what we have is we call, we have my, my couple, I have what's set up, it's called a referral desk. So it, within AFN, AFN is a huge company. We're, all, we're in all, all 50 states, um, even though each branch is independently owned and operated. Like I own Plano, we, we don't have anything to do with any other office, but um, I, have, I have guys set up that's licensed in all 50 states. So even though I technically wouldn't be your loan officer, I would, I would handle everything. Or the loan would just fund, up, fund in another guy's name. So truly I can help you in all 50 states. And I know I'll get a lot of, a lot, I get a lot of questions and I will just, let me just throw this out there. If you owe about, a lot of people want to check into refinancing. If you owe 150 or less and you're looking at, even if you're in the fives, it's hard to find the benefit on refinancing less than 150, even if you're down in the mid threes, because the cost is, call it 5,000 bucks. So if you're refinancing, you're only saving 30 or 40 or 50 bucks a month, and you're paying $5,000 to do that, that's not gonna work for, especially if you're with Leah's plan, your, your break even time is gonna be more than the three years that she probably wants you to hold the property to begin with. So you can eliminate, <laughs> you know, you can, I, I, know it, I know it's tough to hear that rates are that low and you're paying that, but when, when the, when the loans are that at that level and the spreads are not are not going to make a huge difference, it's not worth spending the cost to do it. Yeah, I've got now, loans once, that I'm sitting in in the fives and low fives, high fours, because I know I'm going to sell in the next year and a half, and the break even's almost four years because of the closing costs. So, and um, we're all making those decisions. It's you know the rate is just a number. Obviously, you liked the numbers when we all went into it at the higher rates, but we have to look at the end of the day, the cost to get that lower rate. Are we going to own the property long enough to realize it? And with most of our customers, the answer is no. Right. I think that is all of our questions. So I've got everyone's contact information here for anybody that has any follow-up questions or items. I think that we'll keep doing these panels. I like this. We don't typically bring on more than one guest, but I like the... Everyone's got a little bit of a different opinion, although generally the four of us are pretty much on the same page about this stuff. But I think that um, one thing I am going to ask of everybody on here, I am running out of ideas for classes. <laughs> so I have a, a whole bunch that I've scheduled for the next couple of months, but I would love to hear from you of what you want us to be teaching, what content you want to hear, what guests you'd like us to bring. So please email me 
anything that you think would be a good topic for us to bring or a guest for us to bring on to our podcast and our webinars. And we will absolutely make that happen for you guys. As always, we are so thankful for all of our OmniKey family, both our vendors, our clients, everyone who has helped us get to where we are. We have all braved through an incredible year. And I am so blessed to have all of you along this journey with us and to be able to help you on your journey as you move to your financial freedom and passive income in real estate. So again, as always, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing everybody next week and have a fantastic weekend. Take care and thank you again, everybody for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. Bye.